In this episode of Desert Island Torah, we have the Zakhut speaking to Rabbi Dr. Benji Levy. He is the co-founder of Israel Impact Partners, working with leading funders to accelerate the growth of non-profits. He is also the founder of Dreaming Bigger, a global platform to support the leadership of teams and those that work with them, and Keshev, a mental health centre focused on education, therapy and support. He served as CEO of Mosaic United, a historic joint venture between Israeli and global Jewry to strengthen Jewish identity and connection to Israel. Prior to that, he was Dean of Moriah College in Sydney, Australia. Rabbi Benji was named as one of the three top global changemakers working for Diaspora Jewry by leading Israeli newspaper Makori Shon and awarded Educator of the Year by JNF for his leadership and service. He received an Australian Postgraduate Award and has published Dreaming Bigger with Dr. Erica Brown, Covenant and the Jewish Conversion Question, Extending the Thought of Rob Soloveitchik, An Oasis in Time, Seven Thoughts for the Seventh Day with Koren, and numerous articles. Rabbi Benji has a doctorate in philosophy from the University of Sydney, where he was also awarded first-class honours in Jewish civilization, thought and culture, and completed his BA in media and communications. He completed rabbinic ordination following his study at Yeshivat Haaretzion, an education degree at Herzog College, and the principal's program at the Lockstein Centre in Bar Ilan University. Thank you so much, Rabbi Benji, for joining us today. It's a real zuchut to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an incredible initiative that you're sharing Torah all around the world. So it's Desert Island Torah, three pieces of Torah that you would take with you to a desert island, what they mean to you, why they're so important to you. Really looking forward to learning and finding out. So if we jump right in, should we go with your first piece? Okay, perfect. Te- well, first text. Perfect. The first piece of the first text. More than happy to. Um, but just to contextualize, you know, you told me about this before. And the different people bring different svarim, different parts of different svarim. And I thought if you want three different pieces, three different texts, um, the place to start is really with the birth of humanity. Because at the end of the day, if I was stuck on an island, um, hopefully we uh, have the opportunity with whoever I'm there with um, to sort of redesign humanity, redesign some type of um, sort of moral code and, and systems by which we can live. And I think the best way to look at that is from right at the beginning of the Torah. And I'll just say from the outset, so the three the three passages I was thinking of, um, you know, obviously there's a whole of the beginning of Rashid about the creation of the whole world, but since we're getting to an island, that island's already built. So there's not much to add there, though of course we'd learn it. But if we had a Torah with us, the three passages I'd focus on um, would really be first, you know, the story of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, the first ever human beings to exist in this world. The second would be Cain and Havel, um, Cain and Abel, their their sons. Um, and then I, I guess the third would be, you know, Noah and humanity and sort of that episode. And these three episodes are formative in the development of humanity. Um, and they're very central in the start of Breshit of Genesis. And therefore, I would probably focus on those three. Now, what I find fascinating is no matter how many times I learn these texts, um, and truly most texts in the, in the Torah, I feel like I learned something new. And one of the reasons is that the last letter of the word Torah is a Lamed. It ends in the word Yisrael. The first letter, as we know, is Breshit. It starts with the word Breshit. Any linear text, you read at the top and you carry on down and then you turn the page. But the Torah itself is actually cyclical. When you finish one part, it carries on to the next. There's no page after page, but one long page. And that's completely connected in the scroll that is the Torah. 
And therefore, as you finish Yisrael and you start Breshit, on a linear text, it just ends and it begins. But in a cyclical text, what happens is that it leads into one another and you create the word Lev, Lamed Bet, because the heart of Torah is the capacity to continue to learn and relearn. And as we learn and relearn, the heart of Torah continues to beat. And therefore, while this is these are texts that I would believe that many of your listeners and many of us um, have definitely heard of, most people in the world have heard of these texts, movies have been made about them. Nonetheless, I really believe in terms of three pieces of Torah for an island, these can be super interesting. Should we dive in? Let's go. Okay, fantastic. So let's start with the third, Adam and Eve. So there's so much to say about this. Um, this text is, I, I might even just pick up some certain nuances that I found interesting, but I'm happy to try to develop some talk, some, some type of theme that threads between these three texts as to why we may want to do this. So, you know, it starts off, Hashem Elohim et Adam, right? Interesting, it's Ha'adam, it's talking about this person, and places that person into um, Gan Eden, into the Garden of Eden. Why? to serve and preserve. If there's one sort of clarion call that humanity is meant to be doing in this world, it's to serve and preserve. God says, any tree, any fruit, please eat from it. Except for this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, from that you shouldn't eat. Why? Because the day you eat it, from it, you'll surely die. Now, there's a million questions in this. One obvious one is they don't die once they eat the tree, right? We always have to train ourselves not to know the answer, but to try to be with the text as we're in the text and not jump to the result that we know is going to happen. One, one thing that I find psychologically is I often say to people, you know, what's the first commandment in the Torah? What's the first time? So people say, about um, the concept of Rosh Chodesh and time and all these different things. But when they read these texts, they say, you know, the first commandment, or what would you say the first commandment here? Finally, this is a question I like to speak about a lot um, and read about a lot, interestingly. And I think my answer stems from the fascinating teachings um, that are presented in by his light, by Rav Aaron Lechtenstein, Zohran Racha. Um, and it's exactly what we're talking about here. Um, God commanded Adam, every tree you are free to eat. But then the verse becomes whole when it connects to the next verse, which is, but the eight said, ask, you shall not eat. And I think this is why going with Rashi's famous question, why we start the Torah with Genesis, because as you've said, it's about humanity. It's about living in this world. Rav Soloveitchik presents the famous lonely man of faith, um, which is about what it means to live in this world based on this notion of man being created. But I think this commandment is so great in that it led to something which, according to Rav Lichtenstein, was, as he quotes, picking and choosing. We aren't here to pick and choose. If we're going to serve God, and if we're going to pick and choose to eat from a tree we're not told to, that's that's not that's not life. It's the same with halacha. We can't pick and choose what we want to do and what we don't. And I think this is a command that kind of introduces what we receive in the book of Exodus and is the first commandment because it's it's vital to humanity. 100%. You're more insightful than many other people I've said, but there's something I'd still differentiate in what you said. So I agree with you that this first commandment is around the sense of obligation, right? But you jumped straight away to say something we shouldn't do, something we shouldn't eat from. And most people in general that I ask say that. But the Pasuk, the verse before says, first God says, Mikol eitzagana chol tochal, 
eat from everything. Once God has commanded us to eat from everything, then God says to us, but don't eat from this one. Which means, yes, we have to have integrity. Yes, we have to have boundaries. Yes, we have to have commandments. Yes, we have to have certain guiding principles in our life about what we shouldn't do. But first and foremost, at least the way God set it up, there's commandments that we should do. There's things that we should do in the world. We need to enjoy the world. We need to gain from the world. We need to derive pleasure from the world. We need to contribute to the world. Right? First, it's we get this world of Dala Shamra to serve and preserve. Then it's enjoy everything from it. Once you know that you're serving and preserving it. And then it's once you're enjoying everything, there's certain things you shouldn't enjoy from. And therefore, I think it's a huge message for each and every one of us as to the fact that it's not just a negative theology that we shouldn't do certain things. And sometimes you look at something like Shabbat, you look at something like kosher, you look at all these different things. We often educationally begin by educating that which we should not do. And that is very important. But really, it's fundamentally only comes after that which we should do. And what those things really come to do is they put limits to enhance our experience of. So when you when you take something like Shabbat, First it says, You should work for six days. And then it says that you should keep Shabbat. You can't just keep Shabbat seven days a week. That's not the point. It enhances our six days. And the six days are enhanced by the seven. And they go hand in hand. And therefore, that's a huge commandment. There's lots more to go into it. But I want to get to the point of this text. And that is the response. How do they respond? So if we ask, you know, why was it forbidden to eat the fruit? Or why should we gain from all of this? In very simple terms, I would call this what objective morality, right? The first sin was that they contravened objective morality. Why is objective morality? Because no one individual defined this as morality. There's no person, no group of people, no society that called this moral or right. It's actually God himself. And God is the only thing that is not confined by anything. Therefore, as far as objective beings go, there is no more objective being than God. And this is a huge point on two levels. Number one, it establishes Ben Adam le Makom, our relationship between us and God. And number two, it establishes that in every area of our relationship, it needs to be governed by that objective. You know, if 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 you know what we see going on around the world, if you saw what happened with Hitler and what happened in 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 Europe, the way that there was you know a self justification that certain races, certain people actually shouldn't exist because it's better for the advancement of humanity. So that always needs to be checked against the backdrop of God. And if objective morality in the Ten Commandments in the Torah says, no, you need to dignify every human being. And the only time when you can do X is in the case of Y, Hitler wouldn't have been able to do what he did. If objective morality is there as a foundational springboard, we can achieve a lot. And that's the first sin. What about the first response, right? So what God calls out to, 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 to man and says to Adam and says, Ayeka, where are you? Right? Also, that's a very funny question. Like, what does it mean, where are you? What, he's like hiding in the bushes? God can't, can't see through bushes, right? Yeah, that's definitely a question I really love um, thinking about, um, especially because it doesn't mean where are you in terms of physical proximity. Like, where are you? Oh, I'm in Teaneck, New Jersey. Like, it doesn't mean that. It means where are you in terms of where are you in this world? maybe in a more spiritual context, where am I as a human being? Where, where am I heading towards in this world? What's, where, where, where's, what's my place in this world in a more of a spiritual sense as a human being? It's obviously a more existential question. 
there's a beautiful story. Uh, there's many stories about, you know, people that, 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 you know, really think about this question. But when we read it, of course, we're seeing it narrowly in the text, but also we should see it in the context of our own lives, the subtext of our own lives, and always constantly been asking ourselves the existential question, Ayeka, where are you? Both when you sin and when you don't. Both when you do the right and when you don't. We always need to reevaluate where we are. It's not that God literally couldn't see Adam. It's that God was asking a more fundamental question. He goes through and he says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was scared. Yeah, but even that verse um, kind of connects to what I was saying before. I think Rashi comments on that verse when um, Adam and Chava heard Hashem's voice. And Rashi comments that once making the mistake of eating from the wrong tree, both Adam and Chava heard the sound of God. They were ashamed of themselves to be in the presence of God. And there was a significant transformation that happened when this mistake was made because God became different to them. Their lives were of subjective morality. The question arises from this, how can we interact with God depending on the day we, and how we feel? Like, how can we interact with God depending on our surroundings? This mistake that they made led there to being no clear understanding of right from wrong. We cannot just think that one day we can put our all into our Avodah Hashem and learning and one day we can't. That's the dangerous notion. And that kind of links to what I was saying about what I think the first command is. Because the first command is that Hashem commanded Adam to eat from the tree, which he didn't do. And connecting to Rav Lichtenstein's point, picking and choosing. Once again, this is the whole sense of picking and choosing and it's not a healthy moral way of you know serving god like having a vote of hashem etc and then god says well who told you you're naked right because i told you like have you eaten from this the, from this tree that i told you not to and then it was actually eve you know that woman you gave me well she actually is the one that gave it to me and told me to eat from it and then and then God turns to Eve and he says, What did you do? Um, so it's actually the snake. It's the serpent that enticed me and that therefore I ate. So what happens? We talked about the first sin being objective morality. What about the first response? It's a classic blame game, right? The man blames the woman. The woman blames the snake. Everyone passes the buck. No one to, wants to take responsibility. No one is fundamentally answering the question of Ayeka. And therefore, there's a lack of personal responsibility. And the, the first piece, this first text, other than the depth and meaning and profundity and all the different questions that we raise and different ideas we related, in this island, what I'd like to apply is, number one, objective morality. There needs to be something that guides us. That's why these texts derive from the Torah, because the Torah, at least in the island I go to, and the island, I believe, that can really be setting for humanity um, needs to be guided by that objective morality on a relational level that each person there should have a relationship with Ben Adam Le Makom, with God. And third of all, that there needs to be a sense of personal responsibility. Every single person on the island, because that's what Gun Eden was, where Adam and Eve were, they were on their own little place in this utopian world. They need to accept personal responsibility. Because they didn't, they were banished from that island, from Gun Eden, from that incredible place. Um... But it's a big lesson for us to learn. We jump next to their children. We get to Cain and Hebel. And let's ask the two fundamental questions. What was the sin and what was the response? So Cain said to Hebel, his brother, and it was in the way in the field. And Cain got up and he rose up and he against his brother Abel and he killed him. Now this Pasuk, 
is so often glanced over. And I once heard Rob Sachs say that there's something fundamental in it that can that can have so much meaning. God, uh, Cain spoke to Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Then, if we were like sort of creating an English and adding in punctuation, you'd put a colon and then open two quotation marks. But what happens instead? We don't know what he says. It carries on. But it says that he said something to his brother. What did he say? It says Rav Sachs, this is a fundamental breakdown in communication between two brothers. The litmus test of any relationship is how we communicate with one another. And therefore, we see that the beginning of the end actually happens in the lack of the capacity and the ability to communicate fairly and appropriately with one another. And that's what it leads to. So again, that's an example of the depth. And on this island, we'd need fair communication, process, ensure that there's a certain transparency, a certain governance, people speaking to each other appropriately. If we carry on later, right? So we see the sin here is not... Well, let's just let's just read one more pasuk. I'm going to skip a few pasukim. That was pasuk Chet. This is pasuk Yud Gimel, right? And we're in chapter four of Genesis. Just um, for those that wanted to look inside, the previous um, sin and um, response that we did from Adam and Eve was chapters two and three of Genesis. We're now up to chapter four, and pasuk Yud Gimel, the thirteenth pasuk says, el Hashem." Cain says to Hashem, "Gadol avoni minso, my iniquity, my sin, my." My wrongdoing, however you want to translate the word avoni, is is too gadol minso, is too great to bear. So the response, Cain says to Abel, where is Hevel your brother? And he says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Interestingly, this connects to what I said before, because here God does, doesn't ask him for a location like Tina New Jersey when he asks, where is your brother? But he asks, where is Havel as a person who has a vote of Hashem and as a human being? And Cain doesn't realize the significance of human beings. The famous phrase that's made it across humanity, a lot of people quote this, am I my brother's keeper? Right? What did you do? What have you done? Your, your, your brother's bloods are calling to me from the ground. So there's a lot to unpack here. But I just want to focus on, this is Pasuk Tet and Yud, 9 and 10. I want to focus on, first of all, the same language. We focus on Ayeka before. Here it's Ehevelachicha. Both start with Aleph Yud. One is Ayeka, about personal responsibility. Here it's Ehevelachicha. It starts with the Aleph Yud, but it ends with Achicha. And this is therefore asking about not personal, but interpersonal responsibility. Right? If anyone says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? Am I helping and am I there for those around? The answer should emphatically be yes. And yet, again, they get rid of, they, 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 they sort of throw off the yoke of interpersonal responsibility. And where does Cain even know that it was wrong from? Is there any time in the Torah that God said, you shall not murder? So the answer is yes, but that's later. Until now, there's never been a commandment not to murder. So how does Cain know that it was wrong to kill his brother? But we read the Pasuk that he says, Gadol avonim inso, my iniquity is too great to bear. There's something naturally inside him. Rav Amital Zichronali Racham Rosh Hashiva shares beautiful ideas about this concept of natural ethics. That even though there's the guidance of the Torah, we also quote the Ramban, Kadoshim to you, you shall be holy. What's this commandment to teach us? It's all the commandments where we haven't been commanded. I.e., there's certain areas of life that there isn't a specific commandment to. But the flavor of the Torah should be 
really guiding us on that. And what that should also do is imbue within us a sense of natural ethics. Not only should imbue within us a sense of natural ethics and train that, naturally we have a sense of natural ethics. If an old person falls on the street, we should naturally not wait for someone to ask us, go and help them up, see that they're all right. Even if there's not a specific commandment, there's lots of commandments, by the way, that I can show you that connect to that. But there's no commandment that says, if old person falls on the street, therefore pick up, right? And there's that that is the capacity of the natural ethics. So that really complements the objective morality we talked about in the first one. So sin number two is against a sense of natural ethics. And it's framing up, if we talked about the first one, as ben adam le makom, between God and man. This is between ben adam le chavero, between each person and their fellow. So those are the principles we need to bring into the, into the island. At the end of the day, if we're rebuilding society, ensure that you have a sense of natural ethics. Ensure that even if we don't have a specific rule as we build this, because, you know, every single life is a startup and you've got to iterate and you've got to go with it. So you need to try and use your heart, use your head to guide you in those principles. And ben adam you need to look after those that are around you. Don't, like Cain did, say that am I my brother's keeper, but take a sense of interpersonal responsibility. Don't pass on the blame, even if you don't have anyone to pass it on to, but look after those around you. And finally, we get to our third um, episode, which is of Noah and the flood, right? This is in chapter six of Genesis. There's other people that are talked about along the way. There's other generations that have passed. And then the Torah sort of hones in on this next episode. And it starts off talking about Noah, right? That he was this righteous person in his generation. He walked with God. And then it says, Hamas filled the world. The world became corrupt, right? There's different commentators that explain. Some say it was, you know, treachery. Some say it was murder. Some say it was sexual immorality. Some say that it was theft, right? There's all different opinions. But essentially, the psukim, the verses speak for themselves. Corruption had filled the world. And basically, we're not going to have time to go into the text because I don't want to get distracted with this incredible, incredible Torah that Hashem has given us. But I do want to mine one point before we get towards our end as we're in our third and final area. And that is that God, once this happens, he says, you know, there's too much. We need to put push a giant reset. Everyone's sinning, you know. And if you ask yourself, what is the source of any sin, right? Whether it was murder, whether it was theft, whether it was sexual immorality, whether it was any form of corruption, what is the source of any sin? I think fundamentally, we can look to what the Be'er Sheva says in the Gemara in Sanhedrin, right? And he says that it's selfishness. At the end of the day, any sin I ever do derives from a sense that I'm being selfish. I.e., if I want to murder someone, I'm looking not at what their needs are, right? But at what my needs are. Whether I'm paid to murder, whether I don't believe they should exist in the world, right? I'm looking through that, that, that paradigm. I'm looking through that prism. I'm looking through that lens. If it comes to theft, I need this right now. It doesn't matter what the law says, right? doesn't matter how people justify it. There's a selfishness that's coming through it. And therefore, there's a lack in that and that we see in the entire world between personal and interpersonal, right? We're not listening to God, Ben Adam, Makom as a guiding principle. We're not listening to our fellow people as a guiding principle, Ben Adam, And there's a sense of Ben Adam, us vis-a-vis society, us vis-a-vis the broader context around us, not just those in the microcosm. 
And so I want to ask a fundamental question, and I'm not sure if this is correct answer that I'm going to propose because I haven't seen it written. And therefore, I, I want to give the preface that I'm not sure if this is right, but this is something that I felt um, has a value at least that we can learn from, which is if this is the sin and if, you know, why is God actually prescribing the response of building an ark? On the one hand, you could, you know, put them all on top of Mount Everest and make sure that the flood only goes up to there. On the other hand, you could take them out of the word, destroy the world in a different way, not a flood, and do a million other things. And there's lots of different answers we can glean from the Mepharshim as to specifically we wanted it to take time. So Noah had an opportunity to be Makarov and, and bring other people back. Or other people had a chance to ask questions. There's other ideas of him actively being involved with his family to build this ark. But I saw a beautiful Midrash in Leviticus Rabbah, in Vayikra Rabbah, um, 4.6, Dalad Vav, um, where basically it's quoting the Rashbi, who's reciting essentially an anecdote. And he says, a man in a boat began to bore a hole under his seat. This isn't, by the way, in the context of Noah and the flood, but I think it can lend a beautiful idea that can relate to help us answer why he built the ark. His fellow passengers protested. What concern is it of yours? He responded. I'm making a hole under my seat. Not yours, they replied. That is so. But when the water enters and the boat sinks, we too will drown. Imagine you hear someone digging, digging a hole next to them. And they say, I spent a lot of money for this cruise. I can do whatever I want in my area. You say, yeah, but we're all going to drown if this happens. And therefore the response was when there was such a, a implicit sense of selfishness that was so pervasive across society, God wanted to instill within that group, that island, that group of people that were going to rebuild society, create it within a microcosm where one is fully dependent on another. Not just dependent on one another. On the one hand, any single plank as you build the fabric of society that had a fault and it was at the bottom of the boat, everyone would drown. So we need to understand how important it is as we're on this island to rebuild this together. And number two, right? It's not just that they had to look after one another. They had to look after the animals, right? There was multiple floors. There was multiple compartments. There was multiple areas. There was elephants and giraffes and all these different animals that you can't effectively communicate with in a typical way, at least on a shot level. And also, um, you know, how are you going to help them? Like, you know, imagine having to clean, you know, the feces of an elephant. Imagine having to feed a lion. These things aren't simple and they can't even say thank you. But if you can deal with something or someone that can't even say thank you, that you can't even effectively communicate with, how much more so should you be able to deal with one another in a society that is so selfish if we're going to rebuild it? The microcosm, the incubator, should be one in which we can build these beautiful values of looking after one another, even if they can't communicate with us, even if they can't say thank you, even if they're not in our family, even if they're not in our religion, even if they're not in our species, in our race. We should be able to look after them. And therefore, we see the birth of collective responsibility, the capacity in Benedictus Vivor to be able to help in a broader level. And therefore, these are the three texts that I believe that one could take, or at least I would want to take, as we rebuild a society on an island. Because you need responsibility at the basis. And it needs to be not just a text that we just follow blindly that should be there, but it needs to inculcate, inculcate values that also guide us through that process, even when we're not sure what to do. Responsibility is the ability to respond. And the capacity to do that effectively, I really believe, comes through these three stories. And while there's so much more to glean and learn 
from each and every letter, word, space between, and sentence in these epic narratives that movies have been made about, that stories have been told about, that have guided humanity for so long. I really believe that these are the three texts, these are the three pieces that I would take on an island, that of Adam and Chava, to learn about Ben Adam and Makom, a, a, a vertical relationship between humanity and God, to establish objective morality to guide us, and to have a sense of personal responsibility, to answer the call of Ayeka, this existential question of where are you, in the, in the affirmative in a positive way, the story of Cain and Abel, to understand Ben Adam Lechavero, looking after those around you, to appreciate natural ethics to guide us, even if we don't have a specific thing right here and right now, we don't know kola tora kola, we don't know exactly what to do, we feel and we know what's the right thing to do, and to take a sense of interpersonal responsibility to ensure that when someone says, am I my brother's keeper, we can answer in the affirmative, and finally, noach and humanity, to counter the sense of selfishness with selflessness, to balance the personal and the interpersonal and the contextual, the benedonis vivor, to be able to rebuild an arc that can become an incubator of all of society and have a sense of collective responsibility so that we can start at the beginning, taking personal, then interpersonal, then broader. You start at home, you build and it goes outwards. And together, we can build an incredible society on this island that will hopefully connect with the rest of humanity and be a beacon for all others. And ultimately, when I was really thinking about it, perhaps this island that you're describing is Israel. It's Medina Israel. It's a state of Israel where we live right now. God has re-gifted us after thousands of years the capacity in our own island to rebuild society. And for sure, we haven't got everything right. But we need to use these guiding principles and all of which the Torah gives us to be able to try and build a society that is responsible for one another, that does help one another, that does look after themselves. And this is our opportunity. This is our test. History is going to test us when we've had less than 80 years in this country, right? And in, 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 the, in the history books, one day, we're going to see how we rebuilt society. And there's definitely things that I'm not proud of and that we definitely need to work on. Like any startup, we need to iterate and move forward. But there's a tremendous amount that I'm so proud of, whereby there's incredible chesed, there's incredible um, you know, personal growth, there's incredible Torah, there's incredible you know, avodah, there's incredible relations with the world. In so many different ways, we've done phenomenal things, which we con constantly need to improve in our own island. And ultimately, hopefully, we can be an orla goyim, a beacon to all those that are around us by educating, by inculcating, and living the values ourselves. So great to meet you. Looking forward to continuing the conversation. And Kola Kavod for this amazing initiative. Thank you so much, Awai Benji, for sharing such inspiring Torah. It was a real zuchut, so... Have you with us? Thank you and keep up the incredible work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisrael. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.